The following is a message by Professor Zach Keel from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. devotion this morning. We'll turn in uh, God's Word to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read uh, just a few handful of verses here, uh, verses 29 through 34. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. This is God's Word. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time just to come and open your word and be students of it, to learn from it, and to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive and go forth with greater knowledge and love for you. And we pray that you would be glorified in it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is surely one of the undisputed majestic chapters of scripture. Kind of like a grove of glorious sequoia trees, it towers over really the forest of scripture. But among this great chapter and all these great sequoias like verse 22 and verse 45 and following, these few verses 29 through 34 is kind of like an outcropping of scrub brush. They put stickers in our socks as we keep looking up high at the glorious sequoias over our head. Indeed, these verses do seem kind of odd here, not just for exactly what they say, but numerous things in these verses are very controversial. First, you've got this command to stop sinning, seems out of the blue, this fighting with beasts in Ephesus. And then, of course, this uh, reference to being baptized for the dead. Well, as interpreters and students of Scripture, we not only have the task to figure out what these thorny verses mean, but also how they fit into the overall argument and context of Paul's argument. And these are both necessary if we're going to teach these effectively to others and to our people. Well... To begin with, here in verse 29, Paul kind of goes back to his logical arguments or proofs for the resurrection 
like he was doing in verses 12 through 19. After declaring what the end would be when God would be all in all, now he comes back and he gives some logical arguments. If the resurrection isn't true, then these things are pointless. That's his basic logical argument. And he begins by saying that this is the case with being baptized for the dead. Now, this verse is probably one of the most debated in the New Testament, you could say. Uh, one commentator, commentator lists over 40 different interpretations of this one verse. And so we cannot, with too much dogmatic certainty, because of the opaqueness of this verse, uh, know exactly what's all going on. And yet, because of some evidence, the point is clear that Paul is using And there's a reasonably good take on what is going on here. Now, in the ancient world, the duty to your ancestors when they died or at death was huge. This was an omnipresent duty from the ancient world into Greek, that you had to show respect for the dead by giving them a proper burial. And then at certain times of the year, typically the anniversary of their death or birthday, you would go back and honor your dead, you would actually feed them by putting wine and other foods in little holes in the the tombs. But one of the things with these funerals particularly is it was considered extremely dangerous to pass from this life to the next. And you had to help your dead ancestor pass from this life on to the next. Well, how is this, uh, how did they do this, the Greeks and the Romans? Well, we've seen it in movies. They gave him a coin for the boatman. They put a coin in the mouth for the the boatman, Caron, to cross over the river Styx. Well, more than likely, this baptism for the dead is a Christian somewhat version of this. It's not a sacramental baptism, but it's a funerary rite that a believing saint goes through for their believing dead ancestor. Thus, this baptism helped that dead-believing parent or ancestor cross from this life over to the next. It was a funerary rite, not sacramental. But the person did it for the benefit of the person who died. This is one reason why Paul can mention this, use this, but he doesn't outright condemn it. It's not sacramental, but he also distanced himself from it. He in no way says it's okay, per se. Note what he says here. Though, literally, what do, what do the people accomplish, or what do they mean by those who are baptized for the dead? So he distanced himself from it. But his whole point is, you guys are doing this funeral rite that acknowledges there's another life, there's a resurrection. And his point, if there is no resurrection... Why do you do this? You know, these funerary rites, mourning rituals, people do instinctively. They're very emotional. They're very deeply ingrained in us. And so these, some of these Corinthians who are denying the bodily resurrection are still per- participating in these funerary mourning rites. And Paul brings this up and says, without condoning it, without overtly condemning it, saying, this practice is pointless without the resurrection. Thus, their very baptizing for the dead proves there is a resurrection. Well, Paul's reasoning uh, continues as he goes through. 
No, next he says, why am I in danger every hour? Literally, why is he putting himself to, at his life at risk? This is uh, referring to his personal hardships that would put his person in physical danger for whatever reason. Next, he swears by his pride that he has in them, why do I die daily? Now, in both of these questions, it is, is it assumed if there's no resurrection, why do I do these? These things are vain without the resurrection. Now, dying daily here refers to mortification. Paul regularly, almost always, uses this image of putting to death the old man, what is earthly in you, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. Thus, he's telling them, why do I put my life at risk? Why do I deny myself all these desires of the flesh? Why do I go through mortification and sanctification if there is no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, these aspects of our piety are pointless. I would be dumb to do this. Well, the same argument comes then with this verse 32. Note he says, humanly speaking, from a human point of view, me fighting with beasts at Ephesus, what do I gain? Well, vanity is the opposite of profit. So he says, from a human point of view, my wrestling with beasts at Ephesus was pointless. I wouldn't do it if it wasn't for the resurrection. Of course, what does this mean that he fought with beasts? Well, this isn't a literal referring to fighting with animals in the arena. Rather, this image of fighting with beasts is found throughout numerous Greek writers, and the beasts refer to our human passions, that wrestling with our passions for licentiousness and promiscuity is what you have to wrestle with. And that is part of putting aside the fleshly and doing what is noble or right. So this is another side of his dying daily. He's wrestling, and Paul admits here, he's wrestling with his desires of the flesh for evil. Now, why does he bring this up in Ephesus? Well, if you'll remember from Acts, Ephesus is where he had literally the, one of the most successes. He rented a hall that he preached in daily. There was numerous healings, and he had Asiarchs as good friends. Asiarchs were the top echelon of society. This is where he had the most success. So much success that Demetrius and the silversmith rose up and tried to fight him. They wouldn't have done this if he wouldn't have already been having lots of success. So here, Paul is tempted by wealth, by the good things, the desires of high Greek society. And he says, I'm fighting with these. I am not giving in to them. But he says, if the, without the resurrection, why fight? Why mortify the flesh? What's his, he says, if this isn't true, what should we do? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now this quote is again fascinating. Paul's use of quotes in this few verses are quite brilliant. First, this is a reference or a quote from Isaiah 22, verse 13. And he does cite it there about Judah's response to judgment. They said, since death is coming, let us just party, because we're going to die anyways. But this saying also had a wide use in the Greco-Roman world. And it reflected a very specific view 
the body and the soul. Basically, they viewed that the body died in death and decayed. And what belonged to the body was the desires of sex, food, those sorts of pleasures. The soul was immortal and would continue. But the soul didn't enjoy any of those desires, any of those um, good feelings and pleasures. So the idea was enjoy the bodily pleasures while you have them. For they won't, you won't have them in the grave. So this is what one first century writer said about this. He says, know full well that you are but mortal. Enjoy, indulge your desire. Find joy and feast. Dead, you shall have no delight. In fact, the founder of Tarsus, Paul's hometown, wrote this on his tombstone. Well aware that you are by nature mortal, magnify the desire of your heart, delighting yourselves in merriments. There is no enjoyment for you after death. Mine are all the food that I have eaten, my loose indulgences, and the delights of love that I have enjoyed. But those numerous blessings have been left behind. This to mortal man is wise advice on how to live. Well, this idea is one that has influenced the Corinthians. Back in chapter 6, it came up. This was part of what drove their wrong uh, mantra, all things are lawful for me. That the Corinthians could enjoy the bodily flesh, the desires, because it didn't affect the soul. And you only had the body for a time, so enjoy the body, the taste, and the pleasures for a while. Thus, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, mortification is pointless. Indulge your desires. But note how Paul, he quotes another, he makes another quote to say, you're being deceived in your thinking. And he says, bad company ruins good morals. Now, this quote comes from a Greek Athenian poet, Menander, from the 4th century, and he was a leading figure of the new comedy. In fact, Plutarch wrote about Menander that he was essential to good after-dinner company, as important as wine. But what's significant about this is in Menander, the word the company in the context refers to the company of a prostitute. A prostitute who keeps asking for money in order for pleasure. Thus, company here is the company of gluttony, drunkenness, and promiscuous behavior. And the point of this quote is that this kind of partying, licentious company corrupts, ruins, another sexual uh, word, it corrupts good morals or good character. Well, morals and character belong to the soul. So Menander's point is this kind of lifestyle affects your soul. And what does Paul do? He quotes a Greek to show them that their idea that the the soul isn't affected by our licentiousness is foolishness. He doesn't have to quote quote scripture because he says your idea is so dumb I can prove you wrong with a Greek poet. This is what his point is. And so this carries on. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor or sober up. Now he's using this figuratively, but there's a play here. What What are they doing? They're going to these 
parties at the temples and getting drunk and sleeping with the prostitutes that are there. And he says, sober up, both theologically and in, in your behavior. Stop sinning. And then he tells them, to your shame, you have no knowledge of God. He is very strong. Like in the next verse, he says, you foolish person. Paul is not being nice here you know, in the way we often use this. He's being frank and in their facing saying, you guys are being stupid, foolish in your theology, using the denial of the resurrection to justify your licentious life. For he says it's actually the resurrection that makes our self, our mortification, makes our Christian piety worth everything. Indeed, the critics, those Greeks who would uh, rail against the moralist and say, why deny yourself? Enjoy the body. They would say, your self-denial is nothing but a training for dying. Don't do it. But Paul says, no. We die daily. We put to death these desires of the flesh precisely because there is a resurrection and a resurrection of the body. This is what shapes our Christian life. And thus he's telling them, as he's proving to them the bodily resurrection, he's saying that this isn't just part of our theology, but it's part that affects our entire Christian life and piety. That as we put to death the desires of the flesh, as we flee from these passions of licentiousness, it's not a training for death, but it's a training for the resurrection which Christ earned for you. He purchased, as he said in chapter 6, not just your soul, but he purchased with his own life your body for this life and the next. This is what Paul is trying to get at as he's proving the resurrection to them. He's not just saying, yeah, it's, an or- it's a part of your theology that you have to hold to. No, he's saying it's part of your theology that shapes your entire life. And without the resurrection, our entire Christian piety in life is pointless and vain. Thus, we die daily because Christ died for us. We put to death the desires of the flesh because Christ was raised to raise us up into new holy life to be like him. And thus, the resurrection becomes our power and our strength as we struggle with sin. Because as we struggle with sin, we often feel like it's vain. I keep doing the same darn things that I don't want to do year after year. And Paul says, no, the resurrection is your strength that gives you power in this life because Christ was victorious for you. May this be your strength and your comfort as you struggle with your sin, as you wrestle with the beast of the flesh, as you put to death the old man. May you know that all this is not in vain because Christ died and was raised for you, and thus he earned for you your resurrection. Amen. Let us pray. 
Glorious Father, we thank you that you give us the assurance that our daily struggle is not in vain. Indeed, our daily struggle becomes a very proof of the resurrection, that we do this because Christ was raised for us, because he has secured and purchased as a, as a sure hope and a firm foundation our own resurrection. Thus, Lord, help us to flee the desires of the flesh, to walk before you in obedience, not because we earn something by it, but because Christ died to make us his own, so that we might bring glory to you with our body and our soul. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.